I'm Larry Morrow, and this is Take Two, the radio program that looks inside a person's adventure, not so much from the outside in, but the inside out. In the next 30 minutes, you will discover the inward joy of the heart of Hugh Hewitt that has married him to the passion of his life and the affirmation of ideals that has directed his success. Hugh Hewitt is a lawyer, professor, broadcast journalist, whose nationally syndicated radio show is heard in more than 120 cities across the United States every weekday morning, of which I have listened to for many years. He was an analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, a columnist for the Washington Post, author of more than a dozen books. And if that's not enough to keep him busy, he was the president and CEO of the Richard Nixon Foundation. He was also a graduate of Harvard College and the University of Michigan Law School. You know something here, whenever you mention Michigan in this town, you know that we're in the camp of the enemy. <laughs> oh, Larry, first, I have to say how wonderful it is to talk to you on air. It's one of the voices of my youth, and I just am thrilled to be with you. But yes, whenever Michigan law comes up, I have to explain that I treated Michigan like the Vikings treated England. Go get what's worth having and leave. And so I got up there for three years, got my law degree and left. Yes, you did. You're from Michigan, aren't you? I am. I'm born. I am born and raised in uh, in Pontiac, Michigan, and then came to Cleveland. Oh, maybe about ten years after that, after I was in the Marine Corps. But um, oh, I oh, I loved Michigan. I loved Pontiac, and and of course, I went to the University of Michigan. So you and I have something in common in that regard. Have you been forgiven by the locals yet? I mean, how long does one have to, if you're born in Ohio, you're allowed to go out for three years and come back. But if you're <laughs> if you're from Michigan, how long did it take? Did you have to hide that in the early years of the career in no, Cleveland? No, as a matter of fact, I have not been forgiven. The One of the great <laughs> stories is that during the, it was Michigan week, and of course I'm in the camp of the enemy. So I, I, I wore a maize and blue tie. Oh to the press conference with Woody Hayes. Oh. I'm, now, Hugh, I'm in, the, <laughs> I, oh. I, I'm in the front row, and, uh, of course, Woody Hayes comes out, and he says, excuse me one second before we start the press conference. Somebody gave him the scissors. He walks up, cuts my maize and blue tie in half, <laughs> and tried to put it in my mouth. <laughs> well, I thought I was brave. I would wear scarlet and gray to the uh, big house. Yes. Uh, the two out of the three years that I was at law school, you know, every other year deal. But I would never go in front of Bo wearing scarlet and gray. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, we have a very we have a very good friend of yours listening today, so we have to be good. Avery Friedman. Oh, you bet. Avery, how are you? Good to have you listening because uh, we may not agree on anything, and I'm always right, but I love <laughs> to see you when I'm in Cleveland. Well, you know, that's, that's how we met you. You came into town. Yes. Uh, and debated Avery Friedman. And then when it was done, I was excited to meet you. So I walked up and I remember saying, Hugh, um, I am so delighted to meet you. And you said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from here. And I said, I worked in radio at, at no, I, I gave you my name. And I said, I'm Larry Morrow. And you said, I listen to you and Pete Franklin every day. Pete Franklin. Uh, 3WE was glued to my ear. And I got to start driving in about 1972, and of course, I stayed in Ohio through mm -hmm. the end of '81. Uh, so I listened to a lot of 3WE in the old days. Yeah, it, it's a, it was a great station. Hugh, I I got up every morning to do my morning show at 2:45, and I would arrive at the station like at 3:50. But I listened to you at 6:30 in the morning, which means that you've got to be on the air California time. What 3:30? Yeah, I get up at 2.45 in the morning. I do my show prep at night because the news cycle is over. 
So I'm able to do my show prep before I go to sleep, print off all the stories off the studio printer, walk in, they are collated and ready to go, and I sit down, and I, and so I don't need as much prep time as we did in the old days. I mm -hmm. started in radio in 90 when everything was newspaper clippings and magazines. Yes, yes. Now, if you can print off, you can do the night before as the news cycle goes to bed in California. It's 8 o'clock here, it's 11 o'clock there. So, yes, I get up at... Uh, about 2.15, 2.15, am at the studio by 2.45 and on the air at 3.06. Oh, ready to go. Yeah. But you know what? You have a birthday coming up in a few days. I do. Uh, I'm vaccine eligible on February 22nd. <laughs> That's right. Well, <laughs> you and your pal George Washington celebrate your birthday on the 22nd. Now, he's going right. to be a little older. He'll be 289. So. And he's probably still mad that they changed. When I was growing up in Warren, Ohio, Larry, I got yep. every day off for my birthday because in those days president's day wasn't around george washington's birthday was taken off mm -hmm. and so i got every free day i never had to go to school on my birthday until they changed that mid-60s maybe no i guess it would be 70s it was changed mm -hmm. well is there anything about george washington that mirrors your career at all nothing he was a soldier i'm not a soldier he ran for office <laughs> i will never and have not and he was tall and good looking so that's, there's just nothing in common at all. Well, you know, you just mentioned Warren, Ohio. Warren became an important center of trade for farmers living in the surrounding countryside of the 19th century and throughout the 20th century. Now, you came from some of Ohio's biggest industries at, at that time, U.S. steel mills, et cetera. Did you work in the steel mill growing up? No, my brothers did, and I saw how hard it was. I'm the youngest of three boys, and... Uh, they they both did their turns at Republic or Copperweld. I can't remember what it was. And then I said, I'm going to be a lifeguard. And so I worked at Niles Waddell Pool and Warren Packard Park because it didn't pay as much, but it was outdoor and there were girls. I just thought being a lifeguard <laughs> that, you know, oh, I'm going to work in the steel mill for four bucks an hour. I'm going to be a lifeguard for a buck 75, which was the minimum wage in the 70s. Sure. Yeah. OK, I'll sacrifice the money not to carry hods of steel around during the summer. <laughs> Well, you sometimes refer to yourself as a descendant of immigrant parents of Ireland. And I've heard you say that you're a product of a mixed marriage, sort of a yes. green-orange marriage from County Down and County Clare in Ireland, correct? Correct. You are listening closely, Larry. That's yes. exactly right. I've been to St. Field, Ireland as recently as two years ago where the Hewitts are from the orange and County Clare is where the Millers are from, the Green. Mm -hmm. And they met up in Ashtabula through a couple of descendants. But the first Hewitt came, the first Irish, orange Irishman came in 1868. That was my great-grandfather. Wow. And so they all, all four of my grandparents are born in Ashtabula. All, both of my parents are Ashtabula and just totally northeastern Ohio. But I like to tell people, I get lost in Cleveland. Everyone thinks if you're from northeastern Ohio, you know everything about Cleveland. I tell them, no, I would go to the game, and if I did not have precise directions of the 422, I was screwed. Uh, <laughs> you know, I couldn't get home. <laughs> you can call me. I'll meet you and take you anywhere you want to go, Hugh Hewitt. <laughs> well, now I can get around downtown. After the yeah. convention in Cleveland in 2016, Larry, I, yes. I learned the downtown pretty well, and I've always been able to get to the stadium. Uh, and now the Jake, uh, but I guess we don't call it progressive now. But well, not east side, west side. I can't place Ignatius and Edwards. I don't know where they are. <laughs> well, do you do, do you shy away from participating in the annual St. Patrick's Day Parade? I do. I do. I do. I, um, I, I try and stay out of everything that has more than five people at it. I've found that, that um, once you've been on the news, 
uh, on television, on Meet the Press, and you've taken a point of view. Mm -hmm. In the last five years, people feel it's their obligation to tell you what they think about what you what you have said mm -hmm. that has never happened to me on the radio because nobody knows what you look like when you're on the radio but <laughs> since i started doing tv nationally seven years ago oh my gosh it's just not worth going to big events <laughs> well trumbull and mahoney counties at least historically over the past 50 to 75 years has been a, a blue collar area of the state as as any and you got out of high school in the mid 70s and even in the midst of that were you a nixon guy were you brought up liking him yeah, my parents were uh, middle class. My mom was a nurse. My dad was the first one in his uh, family to go to college, and he went to law school. So he was a uh, working class uh, guy who became a lawyer. And my mm -hmm. mom was a nurse and didn't get to go to college. And so they were rising in America Republicans, meaning Main Street, Dick Nixon Republicans. Not a lot of difference between Republicans and Democrats in those days, but the union people but Warren was very, Youngstown Warren area has always been very, very blue, very democratic. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, Larry, you do a lot of events. You probably did a lot of events on the Strip on 422 in the Youngstown Warren area. Mm -hmm. And that was always where um, East Side, West Side Warren and Youngstown Warren would meet. And it just didn't matter. High school football mattered. The Browns mattered. The Indians mattered. I was not aware of class or anything like that. I always thought the land was was fairly indifferent to it. There were some race problems in Warren in the 70s, like there were in Cleveland in the 70s, but they they are now gone, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I think Ohio has actually gotten through the social upheavals of the last 40 years pretty well, even though it deindustrialized. Well, Hugh, you, you live just a few miles from Boardman, and when you think of Boardman, you automatically think of Bernie Kosar. Were you a fan? I, oh, my God. I have been to every... Brown's home game from 65 to 74, and then I would go often during the 80s when I was home, and Bernie and I are friends on Twitter, but I noted in, in your rundown, you always list that you had Brian on the air, mm -hmm. and I got to meet Brian out here, and we got together for lunch. He called me up one day from San Diego, and in California, I live in Orange County, he said, I'd like to get together to talk about something. Brian Sype is quite the evangelical, involved in a lot of great stuff, yes. a lot of great mission work. And he called me up, and I said, do you want me to drive down to San Diego to pick you up and bring you back to Orange County? Because, of course, I want to have lunch with the great Brian Sipe. So I was more a Sipe guy than a Bernie guy because I saw more Sipe. And I saw Mike Phipps, and I saw Frank Ryan. But I, I, I even saw Bill Nelson. But I really loved that Bernie was from Boardman. Well, you know, you just mentioned Brian Sipe. I just did... And you're going to make you want to do this, but I just did a uh, an hour interview with Brian Sipe on the 50 yard line of the stadium about a month and a half ago. How did you pull that off? Well, it was for the Christian fellow. It was Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and and I remember, of course, Red Right '88, and and Brian was managed by a guy by the name of Ed Keating, another Irishman, and and I was managed by the same guy, and, and oh. I got to know. I just got to know him. While he was here, and then of course, uh, when his when his faith turned, um, I was so excited, and I got to I got to, I got to meet him. And then when I called him and I said, Brian, I'd like to interview you, and he said, Larry, I'd listen to you forever on the radio. Let's talk. <laughs> Let's talk. Well, he was as as generous, and when we sat down, I was quite certain I had seen him beat the Steelers on a Monday night game in 1980. Mm -hmm. uh, having driven from Michigan Law School all night long with three other guys and come back. And he sat there and he instant recalls it. You mean the Bears? 
And I, had, of course, in my mind, all I knew is that the Browns won and we'd driven from Michigan and back. I'd forgotten who they beat, but of course they beat the Bears. He was, in fact, the most winsome guy on the radio. He could be a ESPN sportscaster. Mm-hmm. Maybe his faith doesn't allow him to be now, or maybe he's just interested in other things. But his broadcast chops are quite significant, and he laughed that anyone who knew him in Cleveland when he was QB and the Browns yes. would be shocked that he's an evangelical now. You know, one of the, one of the first questions to him was, and, and the, the story around Brian Sipe and Red Right 88 was, when you threw the interception, Brian, you walked off the field, and, um, of course, Sam Tigliano grabbed you and said, Brian, I love you, knowing they would not go to the Super Bowl. Brian said he never heard that. He said he was so devastated by what had happened. He said that he just wanted to go back to the uh, go go back and sit down and just mope and uh, and try to cry it all out. But but he never did hear that. And I thought that oh. was yeah that was. Fun. I remember the other quote. I remember the "I love you" and a billion Chinese don't know anything about football. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love Sam Ritigliano. I love Marty Schottenheimer too. Terry Pluto wrote a great piece about Marty this week and Clay yes. Matthews. Of course, I'm still addicted to the Browns. And Larry, I think I may have told you, I still have four on the 50 at First Energy in the top row. But like any good dummy brother, I said to my brother when I got them, my dad was still alive. I'm getting them for dad. And you use them. Take them. Uh, and he, he's since passed on. He's with the Lord. And I said, you take them. But I'm not going to come to any game until they are, have their first playoff game. Because it was an expansion team, right? 99. Mm-hmm. And so it's now 2021. I've never been to a game in First Energy, and I've had the tickets all those years. My sons go, my brother goes, my nephews go, everybody in the family. But my brother wrote it down. You know, that, you know you're not coming until they're in a playoff game. So <laughs> next year is the year, Larry. Yes. Yeah, well, it, it appears as if it will be. You know, you know speaking of, of the Brown Stadium and Bernie Kosar, I, uh, I remember having a cup of coffee with my my daughter the day the Brown stadium was going to, to open. And, and the only person who knew that I was having a cup of coffee with my daughter was my wife, Rosary. And so, um, I, all of a sudden the girl at, at Starbucks is there a Larry Morrow in here. And, and I, I thought, Oh, something must be wrong at home. I get to the phone and it's Mayor white. And I said, Mayor white, what is everything all right? And he said, well, I called your house. I need to talk to you today. I said, what is that? He said, we're opening Brown Stadium today, and we were sitting around talking about it. We don't have an MC. Would you like to MC and cut the ribbon? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, and that's like the Brian Seib calling me up. Can I have lunch with you? Did you say, yeah, I'll drive anyone you want me to go to that event, right? <laughs> well, you know, Hugh, you attended John F. Kennedy High School, and my Correct. guess is that not many kids come out of high school in a town like Warren, Ohio, and head for Harvard University and graduate cum laude, Right. Well, there was one other. My brother did it. And, oh, did he? Uh, yeah, but that, there was also the Pisanelli brothers who came out of Warren Western Reserve, and they were football players. My brother was a football player. I wasn't. Uh, so every there's an Ohio quota I like to joke to people. But Warren, Ohio uh, has produced Roger Ailes and Christopher Columbus, the director of the Harry Potter movies and Mrs. Doubtfire, mm-hmm. et cetera, and the drummer for, the Nirvana, who I, for Nirvana, whose name I cannot recall offhand, They've got a number of people who are actually famous as opposed to, to folks on the radio. Where did you go to high school in Pontiac? Larry? I went to St. I, I was, I went to a Catholic school. It's called St. Fred's. And then from there, because the nuns did a really good job in the eighth grade, I went, I went away to be a priest. Um, 
And then, of course, within the next couple of years, I decided not to be a priest. But, you know, it's, it's amazing, Hugh. In my mind in, and in my heart, I still feel that way. Well, of course, I, I don't think you, you can take us out of our Catholic education, but you never take Catholic education out of the kid. And uh, if you're in a good school, every young man thinks about a vocation at some point. Mm-hmm. And uh, they chat you up, right? They want to they know if you're one of them. And I wasn't, I, I kind of talked to the Jesuits at Harvard. They would come by and do some recruiting, but not seriously, not, not a high school seminary. And when you, when you left the seminary, did you go back to public school or did you go back to Catholic school? No, no, I, I stayed at the Catholic school. I, 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 went, I stayed at the seminary for the summer. <laughs> I'll never forget the bishop. He says to me, now look, Lawrence, he said, um, have you decided what you'd like to do? You can stay here at the seminary if you'd like, or you can go right back to school. And I said, well, he said, well for, then he asked me, he said, how do you feel about girls? And I said, well, there's this little girl in the eighth grade. She's a cheerleader. Her name is Margaret, and that's all they had to hear. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, you're done. Now, Larry, I got to ask you something. Your voice is as mellifluous as it ever was. Thank you. And I have to work to do that. I have to rest it. Mm-hmm. I have to take some uh, anti-inflammatories. I have to make sure I don't overuse it. How do you maintain? Because you started before me, and you're still going strong. Well, How I gotta, do you keep it? I got to tell you a great story. I... Um, in 1997, I was nominated to the National Radio Hall of Fame in Chicago, and I went. To, actually, I went to the dinner with uh, with Avery Friedman, um, and and I was sitting. You're going to like this. Uh, I I was a guest at that time, also of Casey Kasem. Casey had me at the table with Paul Harvey, his wife Angel, Jack Brickhouse, the voice of the Chicago. Oh my Club. gosh! Yes. Here's some, here's some more. Ernie Harwell, the voice of the oh Tigers, and Jack Buck, the oh voice of St. Louis. And they're sitting next to me. Um, there was a young guy who was, is going to induct posthumously Robert Smith. Remember that name? No, I don't know Robert Smith. Okay. Well, he, and, and I'm trying to think of, of what, he, what his real name was, but he was known across America as the best ever. But you know something? It taught me um, the vast significance of our medium, the great American radio experience. And, and I remember when I said to Paul Harvey, I said, Paul, I've been listening to you for, what, 15, 20 years? You still sound the same. And I know that you're in your 80s now. And I said, how do you keep your voice with that kind of timber? timber? And he said, I do the, the um, oh, what, what are the, whatever the singers do. He said, I do that every morning. You know, the la, la, la thing? No, the, the warm-up. Yeah. And I said, I do that every morning. He said, your voice will sound the same when you're 100 as it sounds today. So, oh my goodness. So I'm going to start you. doing it now. So that's I'm what gonna, it is. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Larry, cause I always turn interviews into interviews, uh, because I forget things when I see people in person. Do you remember the movie, that thing you do from 1996? Yes. Um, was that your life? I mean, did that just, cause I come into radio in 1990. Yes. That's when I begin my career and I begin in talk radio. You begin in music. That is when that happened. Did that m- movie hit you, or was it tricked up? Yeah, it, it, it was close to that. It was, it was like that. And when there was a guy in Detroit that when I was growing up that I just thought was the best I ever heard, and he was the only one on radio that I thought if I could ever be like anyone, it would be like J.P. McCarthy out of WJR in Detroit. That, that is the guy that I wanted to emulate, and I spent my entire career 
wanting to be J.P. McCarthy. And I'll never forget working on, of course, 1100, which was 50,000-watt clear channel station. WJR out of Detroit was also a 50,000-watt clear radio station. And I got a note one day from a woman, Hugh, and she said, uh, it said, Dear J.P. McCarthy, Dear Larry Morrow, what's going on? When I listen to J.P. McCarthy, I hear Larry. And when I, hear, when I listen to Larry, I hear J.P. That was the most wonderful compliment that oh, I that ever is. received. Can you imagine? Well, I think probably uh, most of the successful Clear Channel uh, talk, uh, uh, jocks and broadcasters had a similar approach to intonation and pacing. Mm-hmm. When I started at KFIM 640 in L.A., which was a Clear yeah. Channel 50,000 watt, I tried to be as funny as Pete Franklin. I remember Pete Franklin ran a sports show. <laughs> and he but was he funny. actually ran uh, a non-sports show at the same time by being lighthearted, funny, and making you laugh, right? Mm-hmm. It was just about making you laugh. I never got to meet him. Uh, I never got to sit down and say hello. He went to New York not long after uh, Gabe Paul went to New York, and I don't know if there was any connection there. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if he's a good colleague or not. You tell me. No, he was he was wonderful. We shared an office for ten years, and he was the funniest guy on the, on, the, on the face of the planet. Always pulling jokes on myself and my family. And I'll never forget one day that I said, "Look, um, Joe Tate and myself uh, and Nev Chandler, we would all like to come to your house for breakfast." You continue to say that you're this great cook, but you but you never invite us over. So he did. He invited us over along with Herb Score, whom you I, I know oh, that you know. Oh. So her, yes. so her, the, so the four of us end up going to Pete Franklin's house for breakfast, and the welcome mat said, "Bug off." <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had uh, one night, uh, one time here in California. Bob Newhart came over to the studio, which is like shaking hands with a tornado. And uh, excuse me, excuse me, Tim Conway came over and talked about Bob Newhart and Dick Martin going out to dinner along with a couple of other of those guys, and they got thrown out of every restaurant they ever went to. Mm-hmm. And I think what you just described would be this, the, the broadcast equivalent of that, the comedic equivalent of that. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned the great one, Herb Score, the voice of summer for anyone yes. my age and older. And he seemed like a gentleman's gentleman. Now, you and Pete are radio guys. Yes. Herb Score was a gentleman who was doing radio. You and I are not gentlemen. Uh, uh, we are on the radio. He was a gentleman who happened to be on the radio. Am I right? Yes, and he was. Uh, he was because he because he didn't come out of the same background that we did. You know, he was a pitcher. He was yeah. a, a sports guy. But you're, Hugh Hewitt, you are absolutely right. He was a, a gentleman, and I he he would tell me during baseball season. He would say, "Larry, look." I know that you're on the air from 5.30 until 9 o'clock. You can call me any time you want. Wake me up any time you want, and I've got the story for you. Wow. Well, he's doing his, doing his job. Yeah. That's a professional. That's a mm-hmm. professional who's bringing uh, – and, of course, the tribe was carried on 3WE. So right. they, had to, they had to make sure that they'd be available to you. I have a little story for you, a little okay. Cleveland story. Um, I get a call from Patricia Heaton who says, I heard you on the show, and you're from Warren – she lives in Rocky River half the year and half the year in L.A. And she's a big star. Come to dinner. So I go to her house for dinner, and she's a lovely, lovely lady, as lovely as everybody says. And her husband's wonderful, and they got, mm-hmm. I think, four boys. And Ben Shapiro is at dinner with us, and we're talking. Uh, she's center right. She's not as conservative as I am or as Ben is. But we're talking Cleveland, and Ben is out of this conversation. She said, we used to invite 
and I call him the man who must not be named on my show, but we'll name him on your show, Larry, Art Modell. My dad would invite <laughs> Art Modell for Christmas because sure. Art is Jewish. And, and so I know what you think of Art, but you can't say that in my house because Mr. Modell and my dad were very good friends. And they she were. proceeded to tell me what a wonderful man he was. I said, stop, Patricia, you're ruining my whole shtick. I don't want to hear about what a... <laughs> and when my dad was in the Cleveland Clinic, you know, they, they've got the big Art Modell bronze in the clinic because he mm. built the doggone thing where mm -hmm. the heart surgery is done. And I thought, oh, okay, I have to admit, he did some good things, <laughs> even if I'm not going to forgive him. Well, you know, in, in Cleveland, he has not been forgiven and probably never will. And that's that's sad in a way, but it did is you know what it him? is. Did you know him? I did know him, and I knew him well. And, and well, t same thing as Patricia, that he was a wonderful guy? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew his secretary really well, and... Uh, Marilyn McGrath, and I would go there every Monday. Uh, and if the Browns won, I would take 104 donuts from Q104 when I was doing the morning show there. And I would take 104 donuts. If they won, they were able to keep the donuts there for the staff. If they lost, the donuts went to a charity. <laughs> oh, oh, what a good bit. Did and, you think that up? And everyone, yeah, and every once in a while, and every once in a while, Art Modell would walk in and say, if you don't mind, I'll have that donut right there, which would be the best one. <laughs> You, you know, radio, uh, when I got started, less so today, much less so, even than 10 years ago, did shtick, did promos, did everything they could to be a memorable experience for the listener and keep you coming back. Yes. And if you ever began to list your promotions, I've done a couple of hundred. I'll bet you you've done 10,000 promotions. Well, I have been, I've been really blessed. And I don't know if it's been 10,000. Well, you know what? We've come to the end of part one of my interview with nationally known broadcast journalist Hugh Hewitt. Listen next week at the same time to part two of Take Two, Saturday morning at 930 on 1220 The Word and Sunday afternoon at 2 on 1420 The Answer. And until next time, do all the good you can to everyone you can, every time you can.